Awesome. So Bernardo, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm super excited about this. Uh, you know, today's topic is kind of hitting uh, uh, all the marks in terms of being mathy and also FM and also aesthetically pleasing. So uh, we're excited to have you. And uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead and let you take the stage. Thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really um, glad to be here. And as you're saying, I guess um, my goal for this talk is sort of um, to convince folks from either side. So if, uh, if there's a very mathy person, I guess uh, what I'm trying to convince you about is that you could potentially use some formal method things to help you out in your math. And if you're a very formal methods person, then I guess what I'm trying to convince you about is that maybe you could apply your cool uh, formal method techniques to some pro math problems. Um, so that's sort of, I guess, where this is situated. So um, that said, I'll just hide the Zoom controls and get started. Okay, so um, I'll start by talking about standard graph coloring. Um, so in standard graph coloring, uh, what we want is um, a function from the set of vertices to integers, let's say from one through k, such that um, if two vertices get the same color, then their distance needs to be greater than one. This is one way of formulating standard graph coloring. So for example, if we have this path on four vertices, uh, let's say the first vertice, vertex gets one, next one cannot get one, so it gets two, then the next one gets one again, and the last one gets two. So um, now I'm gonna talk about packing coloring, which is the kind of coloring uh, this talk is about. So it's also a function from the vertices to the integers, but the requirement is a little bit different. Now, if they share the same color C, their distance needs to be greater than C. So in the, in the standard coloring world, the requirement is always that the distance is greater than one if you share color C. Now the requirement of distance is based on the color. So if we start putting a one here, then I'll put a two here because that's allowed. Now notice that my two ones are fine because they're distance two from each other, but now I could not put it two in the last position because it would be a distance two from it from from another two. So I need to put in a three. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Okay, beautiful. Um, so let's do a couple more examples because uh, if I fail to convey how this notion of coloring works, then uh, the whole talk will be a bit hard to understand. So. Um, so let's go and look at some infinite graphs to see how this same notion applies. So if I have now the infinite path, then I can start by coloring with one and two, then a one, then a three, that part we already saw. And now I can place a one again, a two again, and more in general, I can continue with this pattern of one, two, one, three, one, two, one, three. So notice now that if you look at two occurrences of the number three, they're a distance um, five or apart, sorry, uh, from each other, and that's fine because four is greater than three. So uh, what this means is that if we consider this infinite graph, it's packing chromatic number. So the minimum number of colors to um, to make it work is three, right? And this this graph I write it as the z graph because you can identify it with the integers um, where two consecutive integers have an edge. You're not allowed to have a zero color though, right? Because that would make the ball. No, exactly. That's exactly right. So I'm starting from one. And uh, later on, maybe if we've had time, we, have, we can talk about generalizations where I don't give you all the colors. So let's say I give you two, three, five, seven, nine, eleven, for example, or some other set that's not the colors from one, two, three. And 
what what you could do with those, it's also an interesting question. But from now, um, for the beginning, it's just one, two, three, four, and so on. So now consider this graph. So it's like a sort of ladder, uh, like an infinite ladder kind of thing. So I can start placing a one here. I cannot place a one in its adjacent neighbors, but I can place a one diagonally and so on, right? So with this sort of uh, colors of coloring of the ones, I've colored half of the graph. So that's pretty good progress. Now I can place a two here. I cannot place a two in uh, immediately down left or, um, or here, but I can place it here, right? Because that also respects distance. And so by doing that, I can sort of place twos in this pattern. Then when I place a three here, I can place the next ones like so. Those are distance four from each other. And then I can place those fours there and fives there. And you can check this pattern sort of continues well, and it allows me to uh, do this infinite ladder with five colors. So what we're proving here is that five colors is enough. Not exactly that it's the best number, right? Maybe there's a clever way of doing this with four. So the question now is uh, whether we can do better than this. So um, yet an even more interesting example, in my opinion, is what if you have now the entire grid? So we went from the path to sort of the infinite ladder and now full two-dimensional infinite grid. And the answer to this question uh, is 15. And that's basically all what my talk is about and how we got to that number. In particular, using set solving. I guess that's uh, the formal methods aspect. So let me now give a little bit of background on packing colorings. Um, so they were proposed by Goddard and others at Clemenson uh, in 2002, so over 20 years ago. And the original name was broadcast coloring. So they were inspired by some uh, radio notions. Um, and then in 2007, Drescher and others uh, reinterpreted this uh, notion and thought about it in terms of packing. Um, because of time, uh, I'll not go into details of the namings. But um, since then, over 70 papers have been studying uh, different aspects of packing colorings over different graphs, asymptotics, um, concrete examples, and so on. So the latest survey uh, by Vresher and others states that the most important open problem with respect to infinite graphs is to find the packing chromatic number of the infinite square grid. So um, at that time, 2020, the problem was uh, still open. And my talk uh, is based on my work with uh, my wonderful advisor, uh, Marijn Hölle, on uh, how we proved that the answer to this question is exactly 15. So that's sort of the secret number of today. Um, so let's talk now about a bit of the historical progress on this question, because uh, we didn't do this from scratch by any means. Um, so this is sort of a plot over time of how the, bo the bounds were sort of advancing. So at the very beginning uh, in the seminal paper, uh, people knew that the true answer was between 9 and 23. Then uh, slight improvement on the upper bound to 22. Then um, slight improving improvement on the lower bound to 10. And then uh, 2010, I guess, was a wonderful year for packing colorings because that's a big improvement on both sides. So now the answer is between 12 and 17. And then Martin and uh, their group move it to um, 13, 16, then 13 and 15, 
And now a few years later, uh, we started working on this problem. Uh, in 2022, we moved the lower bound to 14. And then finally, 2023 this year, over 20 years later, uh, we have finally connected the lines at 15. And something I want to remark on is that from 2015 onwards, all the progress on this problem was done uh, through SAT solvers. So at the very beginning, it was more, I guess, like uh, traditional pen and paper math. Then there were some simulated annealing algorithms, some back backtracking. And then it seemed that the best tool ended up being SAT solvers. So um, in order to get started with the uh, real issue here, how did we do this? Uh, let's start talking about how can we can use a computer at all to prove anything about an infinite object, because that sounds a bit weird. So there are uh, several, I guess, considerations here. One is whether you're proving a lower bound, um, so uh, that the true number of colors is above a certain amount k, meaning that k is not enough, or an upper bound, meaning that k is enough. So the techniques are going to be pretty different. So if you're going to prove that k colors are not enough uh, with a computer, then probably what you want to do is the following. It's to find some finite subgraph h of g, and then prove that that finite subgraph cannot be colored uh, with k colors, that k is not enough for that graph. And then, uh, and then sorry, uh, the conclusion is that if it's not enough for the subgraph, then of course it's not going to be enough for the whole graph. For upper bounds, then uh, we get a second separation. Because for an upper bound, we need to show that it is possible to color uh, these infinite objects. And to color infinite objects, basically, you can think of colorings as either periodic. So it's like uh, the ones I showed earlier, for example, where you show how to do that. And then you say, basically, oh, and I can repeat this forever. Or aperiodic colorings in which uh, there's not a pattern that you're repeating, but somehow you're able to always keep uh, finding colors within uh, the appropriate range from 1 to k. So if you want to find good aperiodic colorings with a computer, uh, then the theory is really not great. Uh, we really don't know uh, how to do this well. And if people are interested, at the end, we can talk about some concrete open questions about this that I would love for somebody to find an answer. Um, and for periodic ones, the main idea is going to be uh, using something that uh, we call toroidal edges that will encode in the finite in a finite subgraph H the fact that I want to use that subgraph periodically for the full coloring. So I'll add some extra edges that'll sort of make the graph understand that I need a coloring that takes into account the fact that I'm going to connect it with itself periodically. Bernardo, but, do we have any kind of result that says that if a a periodic solution exists and a periodic one does or vice versa? Or are they yeah. distinct? So that, so I mean, uh, yeah, that, that's a fantastic question. Um, if somebody has the answer, I would pay to know that. Because okay. I, so I can talk a tiny bit about it. I know, and the proof is not hard, that this is true for one-dimensional colorings. So by one-dimensional, I mean the graph is one-dimensional. So, so if we talk on the graph Z, for example, um, and I give you some colors, so not necessarily from one through k, but I give you two, four, five, any subset of the of the natural numbers. Um, if I give you those and they're able to color it, then they're also able to do it periodically. And that's not hard to show in general. Uh, you can either show it by some pigeonhole cute proof, or it's a consequence of some deep results 
or not the results, but on some theory of finite subsheets. Right. Uh, but but if you try to do that in two dimensions, then completely breaks as a technique because we know that in two dimensions you can have um, a periodic, like inherently a periodic objects like Wang tiles and so on. So so we really don't know. Uh, therefore, we also don't know if I give you a set of colors and the infinite square griff, whether it's decidable if you can color that or not, because periodicity is very related to decidability. Yeah, that's super interesting. It, it so we can sidetrack. Yeah. It's just it reminds me of like omega regularity with linear temporal logic, right? Where if a counterexample exists, then an omega regular counterexample exists, which can be represented finitely because it's a prefix plus a repeated postfix. And so that's essentially like that language has one of these equivalences, and it seems like it'd be useful if you had that here. But obviously, you agree, like it would be useful. <laughs> and no, that, that yeah, that, that's something interesting. I'm I'm actually not aware at all of the um temporal logic uh sort of super uh was it called sorry super regularity uh it's omega omega regular oh, omega regularity okay okay um yeah so uh yeah that, it uh, it could be interesting to see if there's a we for example it's not too hard to see that you can encode this coloring in first order logic um that gives you some capacity ideas, but yeah, we can talk about uh, that later. It's it's very interesting. I I would die to know whether uh, it's true or not that in this particular problem, um, an aperiodic coloring implies a periodic coloring, and I really don't know the answer yet. Okay, so let's do an example. Uh, so if we consider again the uh, one-dimensional um, integers, and the answer is three, as we saw earlier, the way you would prove this with a computer looks like so. So first you need to prove uh, the lower bound so that two colors are not enough. And for that, uh, the path on four vertices is enough. If you try to do to use colors only one and two, you will uh, end up very sad at that as that smiley face because uh, it's just not gonna work in any combination. To prove the upper bound, meaning that three colors is enough, a way you can do this with a computer is by adding these toroidal edges. So you're sort of closing this path into a cycle to represent the fact that you will extend its coloring periodically. So notice that this, the packing coloring here, one, two, and one, three, works even when I add this extra edge right now between the first and the last vertex. And that implies that I can sort of do one step of unrolling my coloring like so. Why does it imply it? Well, because uh, we know from C from the coloring on C4 that it's legal to have the first four vertices be one, two, one, three. And now I know that it's legal to put the vertex on the right of three be a one because of the toroidal edge on C4. And because of that same edge, I know that it's fine to put a two on its right, a one on its right, and then finally a three. And so the colorability of C4 implies that of C8 and so on and so forth. So this sort of idea um, is enough uh, to, to um, prove this um, upper bound on the one-dimensional integers. So now what are the good subgraphs? Because uh, I showed you that C4, that sorry, that P4, the path on four, four vertices was good for um, a lower bound and C4 was good for an upper bound, but what are the good finite subgraphs for Z2? So uh, when Eckstein and their group prove a uh, lower bound of 12, 
uh, they use the nine times 15 red. Martin and their group for proving in the lower bound of uh, 13 use the 14 by 14 grid. What we use is slightly different. We use the D14 diamond. And part of the reason for this is that our intuition tells us that given uh, we're in Manhattan distance, um, this is the circle in the Manhattan distance. And there's some intuition of why that makes it a better shape to, um, to prove lower, lower bounds. So uh, from now on, I'll represent the subgrades like so. So without the vertices, just with cells, but you need to bear in mind that they're connected only to their orthogonally adjacent neighbors. So the first step towards uh, obtaining our result is the use of translational symmetry, or uh, in layman terms, I like to call it just forcing the center. So Exxon and others approved a lower bound of 12, and they assumed that the vertex 5,5 in this uh, finite subgrade would get color 9. What we do is to assume that the central vertex in the diamond 14 will get color 6. And let me explain why it's fine to assume this. So um, first, I guess, the center is the best vertex to force. If you're going to be assuming the color of some vertex, you might as well assume that of the center, because it's the one that participates in the most clauses. I guess I haven't talked about which clauses, but what we mean by that is in the most number of constraints. If you have a vertex that's at the very edge of this finite subgraph, it has sort of fewer total neighbors at uh, the different distances. A more formal way of saying that, I guess, is that if you want to consider the different balls sent of different radiuses centered in some vertex, this is the vertex that sort of captures the most. So why is it fine to assume that we will have color six in the center? Well, so first, uh, we know based on our previous work from 2022 that there's no solution with 13 colors. So what that means is that if there were a solution with colors 1 through 14, but not using 6, then we could map that solution to only use colors from 1 to 13, right? Because basically, higher colors are more restrictive than lower colors. So if you have a solution with colors 1 through 14 avoiding 6, then you can map it to 1 to 13, because both are using at most 13 colors, and the uh, one in yellow uses colors that are harder to use. So for example, if we had this solution here on the left, uh, we could map it to that on the right by changing the 14 to a 13 and so on. The 7 changes to a 6, and we know that that's fine because the 6 was not being used before. Does that make sense? Yeah. Awesome. So notice that the ones, twos, three, fours, and fives, I'm not changing them from left to right because those are common to both. But everything that's from six and onwards, I'm shifting one down. So therefore, a solution if exists must use color six. And now uh, the idea is that we can safely assume that not only it uses color six, but it will use it at the center of our finite subgraph. Why is that? Because if it uses six somewhere, I can just sort of choose to translate the finite subgraph I'm looking 
until I situate it at a point where six is at its center. So if X is this uh, infinite solution and it uses six somewhere, I can try to imagine how the D14 centered in one of the sixes that it uses looks like. So a natural question, if you're gonna pour some colors, which color is best? And we did some experimental uh, analysis on this and it turns out that six is the best color. So this is the runtime to prove a lower bound of 14, which is a bit easier because uh, doing experiments with 15 is way too expensive. But we did this experiment with 14 and six is the best color to force. And there's some intuition if we have extra time, I can talk about why some color roughly in the middle is good. So now let's go to the center of our business, which is about encoding this in propositional logic. So then we can use a SAT solver to find the answer. So we want to encode in propositional logic the fact that the chromatic number of dr, so a diamond of radius r, is at most k. So the first step is that we will just use the natural variables. So representing that a vertex v will take color c. So we will call those just x, v, c. Then we need to enforce that we actually get a coloring out of this whole thing. So we need to enforce that for every vertex, at least one of the colors will be chosen. So that means that we get uh, a clause per vertex. We call this at least one color clauses. So if the radius is r, given that the number of vertices is um, roughly r squared, you get r squared clauses here. Um, and now we need, I guess, the most important clauses, uh, the ones that encode the packing chromatic uh, restriction, which are simply that um, if u and v are at most this and c, then just they cannot take both color c. So one of them must avoid that color. That's what this disjunction is expressing. And the number of clauses here is basically as follows. So for each vertex, uh, which is counted by the size of the r, you need to avoid um, everyone in its radius c. So that's DC many vertices, and you're doing that for uh, each color C from one through K. So that's uh, asymptotically, asymptotically, sorry, um, R square K cube, many clauses. And then finally, we do add this uh, center clause to force the color, color of the center, which is uh, one clause and I guess O of one. Um, so the total uh, is of course dominated by the at most one distance clauses, uh, which are of R square K cube. Can we do better? Well, of course we can, because that's the title of my slide. So how can we do better? So the direct encoding uh, was using uh, so many variables and way too many clauses. So uh, what we need in order to prove the lower bound of 15 is to set the parameters R and K to 14 which results if you plug in the numbers to roughly 1 million classes. And the bottleneck is of course in the distance classes. So in our SAT 2022 paper, we proposed a recursive encoding that uses R square K log K classes only, but it is mainly a theoretical uh, contribution because the asymptotic, the constant hidden in the asymptotic expression is actually pretty large, it's like 64. And it actually doesn't work uh, much better than the direct encoding in practice. 
So uh, in this new work, in order to get a result, we present a practical encoding that works really, really well. And this is probably uh, the main contribution of our work. So let's see how it looks like. So how do we do the class encoding for encoding that you can pack in color dr with k colors? So the first step we did was some reverse engineering. Um, so there's a pre-processing tool that's called BVA. It stands for Bounded Variable Addition. And what it does is that it takes a CNF formula and it tries to uh, re-encode it uh, to reduce the number of clauses. So if there's a way to re-express your same Boolean formula with fewer clauses, this tool will try to find it. Um, and we did that over our problem and it actually did substantially reduce the number of clauses, which was very interesting. But when we uh, put the new reduced formula into a set solver, the solution times didn't improve. So what we did was uh, to reverse engineering this, this tool to understand how it was sort of automatically by doing some greedy heuristic choices, uh, how is that it managed to reduce the number of clauses and then inspire an encoding based on that. So the main finding is represented with this example. So we found out that BVA is introducing something that we call regional clauses. So instead of thinking of the color of a vertex, uh, it's sort of uh, a way of thinking of colors of regions of a graph. So it'll create a new variable Y1 that represents that one of those three vertices has color four. So it's now a variable that represents that somebody in a particular region gets a particular color, color four in this case. This uh, second new auxiliary variable y2 is doing the same, but now over this square. So both variables represent that at least one vertex in the re in the region gets color four. And the question is, well, why why the heck is this useful for anything? So it's actually pretty cute in my opinion. Uh, the reason why this improves the encoding is because now we can say that um, at least one of them must be false, right? Because I cannot have a four in both regions because if I do, then they're necessarily gonna be a distance uh, at most four from each other, which is gonna be um, a conflict, a problem, right? So we can now directly say that at least one of those regions must not receive color four. And therefore what's happening there is that, oh, sorry, I just, um, one thing before that, and therefore what's happening there is that I'm avoiding to sort of create a clause for all the possible pairs. So saying like the first vertex in the first region and the second vertex in the second region cannot be both four. I'm now doing it all at once by saying um, that the two regions are sort of incompatible. So the problem of why this uh, if you just use this automatic BBA tool doesn't work well in practice is because it creates different shapes of regions and places them awkwardly uh, in the graph. Because it's a greedy and a heuristic tool, it doesn't really have a, a knowledge of how to do this in a structured manner. So uh, the main idea of the plus encoding is to use this regional idea, but use it in a structured way by using this, uh, we, we call them plus regions because they look like the plus symbol, but it's just a diamond of radius one, if you want to think it that way. So that's how one of the uh, plus encoding, the plus regions look like in that particular uh, diamond of radius six. 
So we place them in this structure and symmetric uh, manner, and that's going to be quite important. So just an example of uh, the benefit we get out of doing this is that, um, as you can see, the number of clauses from direct goes way down to our the automatic tool does. By doing the plus regions, we increase the number of clauses, but our solution time is dramatically better, both on the direct one by a factor of 10 and even uh, by a factor larger than three over the optimized formula itself. So another key step in our solution is symmetry breaking. So the idea here is that we will exploit the inherent symmetry of our finite subgraph. So if we have uh, one of these diamonds, this is the six, for example, I can rotate it over that line and it's still the same. I can also do that over that symmetry and, at, and it's still the same. And I can also use this symmetry and it's still the same. So that gives me an eightfold symmetry. And a problem is that if you just place the plus symbols uh, in the way we were thinking, you actually break one of the symmetries. Now it's no long longer symmetric with respect to one of the symmetries and you can only get a fourfold symmetry using the plus encoding. But there's a way to fix this. The idea is to break the symmetry of the problem before re-encoding the, using the pluses. So how do we encode this symmetry breaking? The main observation uh, can be illustrated with an example like so. If you consider a sub D5 of your finite subgraph, because of the constraints, there can be at most one occurrence of number 10 in this finite D5. So we can enforce it to appear um, in a particular region. So in the sort of north and east region, uh, because we know it can appear at most once. And if it were to appear somewhere else, well, I could just pretend to rotate it so it's placed in the region I like. So the way we do this in logic is simply by adding negative units on the positions that are not in my preferred region to forbid that uh, those will, be, will get colored with 10. And if for some reason they were the, the re there were to be a solution that doesn't use any 10s in the central sub D5, then we can break symmetries on the nines uh, when considering the sub D4 that's around the center. So that's the main idea of uh, how you encode this. And next ingredient of our solution is called cube and conquer. And it's a base, it's a very general divide and conquer um, paradigm for, for SAT solving. It was introduced by my advisor um, about a decade ago and it goes like so. So you have a CNF formula phi to start, and you need a tautological DNF. Um, that's just a disjunction of cubes. Uh, that's where the name comes from. And the reason why this, or the sort of main equation of human conquer is the following. The satisfiability of our formula bar phi is, sorry, is equivalent to the satisfiability of uh, their conjunction because uh, phi is a tautology. And that's equivalent to uh, whether bar phi in one of the cubes works 
And that's actually progress already. Why? Because when you have these M-independent problems, you can just solve them in parallel. So it, this is sort of a way of thinking of dividing your problem and condition your solution on these CI cases. Each of those is a case and you're saying, okay, is my formula true if I assume this case or if I assume this case? And given that the original phi is a tautology, that means that it's a complete partition of all the possible cases and therefore that equation uh, is right. So the intuition you wanna think uh, is that this um, formula phi um, is composed of these cubes that are an exhaustive split of the problem into cases. So the question then is how these cases would look like. And that's actually a very important question because uh, the whole performance of cube and conquer will be determined by how do you split your problem into cases correctly. So if you have too few cases, then you weight parallelism. And then if you have too many cases, then you weigh the power of a SAT solver. So for example, if, if your formula has n variables and you have two to the n cases, then sure, each case is trivial, but then you'll solve two to the n of those, right? None of, the, none of those use the uh, practical power of SAT solvers, and therefore you completely wasted CDCL. You also want your uh, cases to be of similar difficulty. Ideally, uh, they're all roughly the same. Um, and sorry, and just to mention a bit of the idea here is because let's say you have just two uh, cases that you're solving in parallel. Well, if one concentrates all the difficulty, then the easy one will be done and then you'll end up spending all your time in the hard one. So hopefully you divide your problem into similarly difficult cases. So in our previous work of 2022, we did a split directly over the direct variables. So our cases were looking like, okay, imagine a case where vertex four comma three gets color five, Vertex 9,0 gets color 13, and vertex 3,3 .3 does not get color 7. So that's a possible case. And the idea is that by assuming these facts about uh, a solution, it will be easier to, uh, to discard that it could potentially work because we're already assuming certain things. In this work, we do a split over the, the auxiliary variables that the plus encoding introduces, so the y variables I mentioned earlier. And let me tell you why that's actually a much better idea. So in the old way of splitting in terms of the direct variables, if you have the variable x on the vertex 4, 3 and color 5, when you split it into cases, you're basically sort of dividing the world on whether that's true or not. If that's true, if that vertex gets into color 5, then you actually did a lot of progress. That's like finding a number in a Sudoku, right? When you find the right number, that is a lot of progress. The problem is that if you uh, if you say that no, that that color does not get color five, then that's actually not a lot of information. It's not helping you much. So that case gets very hard. It's like saying in a Sudoku that that cell does not get color seven. And that's like, sure, but it's not super helpful. The advantage of the uh, auxiliary variables that represent regions is that if they're positive, then you know that somebody in that region gets color seven, and that's pretty useful. Um, it's less useful than knowing exactly which vertex gets color seven, but it's still useful because it's a small region of the space. It's only five, vertice, five vertices as it's a plus symbol. And then if it's negative, now you do get a bit 
a bit more because now you're saying that nobody in that region gets color seven. So you're discarding it from an entire region. So you're discarding it from five vertices and that's significantly better. So it's a more balanced way of designing cases. And as I was saying earlier, balanced is the trick for parallelism. So what we get out of doing this right, it's actually linear speeds up, linear speed ups. So if sequentially we manage to do that in 800 seconds by using 128 cores uh, in a good computer, we reduce the search to six seconds. So that's uh, a factor of 123, which is pretty similar to a number of cores. That's basically the heaven of parallelism. Get a speed up that's just proportional to the number of cores you're using. Another contribution of our work is what we call the at least one distance clauses. So the idea here is the following. Every, uh, every D1 subgraph must contain a one. Or So uh, the solution I have displayed here does not have the um, allot clauses, the at least one distance clauses. When we enforce them, notice what happens. The four that I had there, gets turned into a one because these clauses are forcing that in every uh, in every sub D1, so in particular, it could be the D1 center on this four, even though part of it gets outside of the graph, but I can still think of it. Uh, I'm enforcing that it must contain a one. And the reason why I can enforce this without losing generality is because if I was gonna have a D1 that does not have a one, then there's no conflict in changing its center to a one. And given that smaller colors are the ones that introduce the fewest conflicts, as soon as I can change something for a smaller color, then I uh, might as well do it because I'm winning something. So um, also benefit of doing this is that the solutions gets, get more structured as this picture is saying. So I explained the reason for correctness and um, it's hard to formalize what it means that the solution gets more structured, uh, but we do measure this empirically and we get around, um, if I remember correctly, a 20 something percent speed up by uh, including this form of restrictions. So here's a bit of an ablation study uh, running on a single core. And we can see um, what the um, impact of each thing is. This was on uh, for proving a lower bound of 12, so if you don't do any of these things, uh, a modern SAT solver will do it in 10,000 seconds. So that's roughly three hours. Uh, with these with this things on a single core, it is, gets down to five, 55 seconds. And once you do cube and conquer, you can solve this one in less than a second. For reference, uh, this same study um, is what is enough to prove uh, a lower bound of 12 which when originally done took 120 days of computation uh, with a simulated, simulated annealing um, algorithm. Now we can do that in less than a second. So I'm um, approaching, I guess, uh, the end. Let me talk about uh, how do we prove that all of, all of our uh, ideas are correct, uh, the cube and conquer, the symmetry breaking, and so on. So we use several ingredients. We use this particular subgraph, a color in the center, the plus encoding, symmetry breaking, five layers of it, um, cube and conquer with over 5 million cubes and a particular algorithm that we devised to uh, do the split. 
uh, these out clauses and so on. So with all of that, we end up getting the final result, the lower bound of um, 15, which closes the problem because we had already an upper bound of 15. And that took um, almost 5,000 CPU hours. So that's less than two days on 128 cores. The DRAT proof, so that's a proof format, uh, it's 34 terabytes long. And uh, that's compressed from an LRAT proof that's actually 122 terabytes long. So this is a pretty, pretty long mathematical proof, if you will. It's not the largest, um, though. So in order to generate this proof, what we do is uh, to basically prove the correctness of each of the ingredients of our solution individually, stitch them together in the appropriate order. And um, so for example, uh, the correctness of the allot clauses come from uh, these clauses being blocked, which is a notion in propositional logic that implies that you can add them to a formula without, um, without reducing the number of solutions. We need to prove that our splitting cases is a tautology, right? And proving that something is a tautology, it's also a co-MP hard problem. So we use obviously that solver to do that. And we implemented a prototype to prove the correctness of our symmetry breaking in uh, the DRAD proof format. So at the end, the only unverified core of our whole thing is the direct encoding because the translation from the direct encoding to the plus encoding is itself verified. So, so all you need to do is to prove that that is to, I guess, uh, trust that the direct encoding represents faithfully the mathematical problem. But uh, that's actually a very simple encoding as I showed earlier. And we put in the paper an implementation that's only 26 lines of Python code. And then for completeness, after the paper is done, uh, we verified that the Python code is correct in cake um, in a, um, in a theorem prover. Uh, so now even that uh, part is verified. So we end up with a single unified DRAT proof that can be independently checked by any computer um, and that uh, fully implies that the packing chromatic number of the infinite grid is at most, uh, sorry, it's at least 15. So the proof is for at least 15. We already knew that uh, it was at most 15 because there was a solution with 15 colors. So that's basically uh, the core message I wanted to give, just the different ingredients and sort of tools we were using. Uh, but now, if I still have a few minutes, I would like to just show some uh, cool things that I just found fun while working on this. Um, so I'll do that very quickly, and then uh, we can go for questions and a discussion. So the first thing, uh, is that um, Donald Knuth, so one of, uh, I guess, my heroes in computer science, uh, is very interested in the combination of, um, in the intersection, I guess, of set solving and graph coloring. And so we sent him a copy of our paper after uh, we were done. And he read it and gave us some feedback, which to me was pretty amazing. Uh, but something cool that happened uh, because of that is that he told us that the plus encoding uh, reminded him of the tiling on a church in Roa city in Norway uh, that his wife and him visited uh, in the 1970s. And we managed to find a solution 
uh, uh, sorry, it's not a solution. We might we managed to find a picture of that cathedral online uh, in a Norwegian website, and uh, it is basically a structure uh, plastiling, uh, which is pretty cool. So we sent him the picture back, and he just sent us a one-line email saying that the internet is wonderful. So another thing that I'm uh, quite excited about is something that we call the Chesper conjecture, and it goes like follows. So before we manage to actually uh, put all the ingredients together and uh, finish solving the problem, we consider the following idea. It's like, can we assume that the color one will be used like so in a chessboard pattern? That's why we call it a chessboard conjecture. So the question is whether you can assume this without loss of generality. And if so, then that gives you a dramatical performance speed up. Why? Because then you know already what, the, what color half of the graph gets. And given that these problems are of exponentially, exponential difficulty, reducing the input by half is like a massive gain. And actually, we proved uh, before we had our full result that if the Chesbrough conjecture was true, then uh, that was enough for everything. Because it was uh, not too hard to prove uh, that the formula of the D14 diamond with 14 colors Assuming the chessboard pattern and a six in the center was unsatisfiable and therefore impossible um, to do. So we already had that. And then uh, what we were trying to do is like, okay, let's just try to prove by hand the chessboard conjecture, and then we'll be done with this and you know move on to other problems. But it turns out that the conjecture is actually false. And we found the smallest country example after we were done with the main result. And this is the smallest counter example. So it is over D14. There's no, if you think any smaller than, than radius 14, uh, the Chesbrough conjecture always holds, meaning that whenever there is a solution, you can assume the Chesbrough pattern. But for 14, you actually cannot. So let's see what's happening. I'm removing everything that's not a one from the picture for you to be able to see it more clearly. And if you pay attention in this very border on the left, um, there are actually two ones that are out of the chessboard pattern. And weirdly enough, deviating by that amount is enough to have a solution when you consider the diamond of radius 14. When you consider the, rate, the diamond of radius 15, then there's no solution. That's how we got our final result. But with the diamond of, diamond of radius 14, it's unsatisfiable if you use the chessboard but if you don't use the chessboard, it manages to find a solution that almost uses the entire chessboard pattern, except that it deviates on two vertices. So my advisor and I like this counterexample so much that we uh, made some art with it uh, from uh, collaborating with the design company. So we each got this sort of paintings in metal of the counterexample. Um, and now, finally, the last fun thing is that for the upper bound, uh, the upper bound of 15 had already been shown by Martin and others in 2017. And the way they did it was to take a previous known solution with 16 colors, and they managed to you know, do some clever changes uh, to argue that actually you didn't need the 16th color, but 15 was enough. We reproved the result using a local search solver. So our result only uses, is fully automated. And it uses a toroidal 
72 by 72 grid, so a grid that we connect sort of in this toroidal manner I was describing earlier, plus assuming a chessboard, plus assuming a six in the center. So uh, an open question, if anyone wants to um, have fun, is whether it's possible to find a periodic uh, packing coloring that uses a smaller tile size than we did, so smaller than 72 by 72. Because we also tried, let's say, 48 by 48, and we just couldn't get it, but it might exist. So here is the actual last thing, and I promise uh, I'll shut up uh, after this. But uh, David Scali uh, from, um, if I'm not wrong, Hungary made a really cool animation of the uh, upper bound solution we found with the set solver. So I just want to show you guys that animation. So it's sort of using this pancake stacks, I guess I want to call them, to represent the different colors have different heights. And that part of the reason why I really like this animation is that it's reminiscent of the broadcast coloring idea uh, that introduced this whole world of packing colorings back in 2002, where they were thinking about modeling radio stations, some of which are more powerful than others, and the most powerful ones need to be need to uh, have a, small, a bigger radius in which they uh, cannot have interference with other uh, using the same um, broadcast frequency. Whereas if you're a very small radio, maybe you can have the same broadcast frequency not too far away from you. So that's it. Uh, and I'm now uh, really excited to take questions or just discuss fun things. Bernardo, that was excellent. Thank you so much. Um, since there's such a small crowd, I think people can just kind of freely jump in and ask questions, but maybe I'll get us started with one. Have you thought at all about um, how the problem changes when you snip an edge or when you snip infinitely many edges in a pattern? For example, you know, if I go in with a pair of scissors and I cut every third edge in a line or something like that, I mean, there's all sorts of ways you could formalize that problem. I, I'd be curious if you've thought about that at all. Right. So I've thought about it a little bit. Um... So given the audience is small, they can uh, confess something. So um, so we started working this problem before knowing all its history and that people had like thought about it and did some results. So we actually sort of reinvented the wheels a few times before doing this. So we also studied other infinite graphs. Um, like what if, for example, instead of having only um, orthogonal neighbors, you have also diagonal neighbors, for example. Or what if instead of being Z2, it's a, the problem takes place over Z3, right? So it's like this sort of infinite cube. Um, and for each of those, you'll get different answers. Um, in our, we also thought about like infinite binary trees, for example, and so on. Um, so getting more specific about your question, I never thought about exactly what you're mentioning, which is quite interesting. So taking still the 2D um, infinite grid, but sort of, uh, cutting things and seeing if then you can suddenly do 14, for example. Like a cool question is the a cool question that pops into my mind is like, okay, if you cut just if you remove just one edge, you'll probably not be able to uh, to use only 14 colors. Um, how many edges do you need to uh, remove at minimum to be able to use 14 colors? And the answer is going to be obviously infinite, but I mean by density, right? So what proportion of the edges will you have to delete in order for this to be um, solvable with 14 colors? I have no idea what the answer is, and I think it's quite an interesting question. So thank yeah, you. I also I wonder if there's some, some way that having theorems about cutting edges 
could get you to having theorems linking a periodic to periodic solutions, right? Because if you can do a true cut that genuinely splits the entire infinite graph into two parts and have equisatisfiability, then now you have a tool mm. you can start to use to maybe, you know, chop out like a finite part. And then maybe you can make some sort of periodic argument. I'm really speculating. I don't know, but. No, but yeah, that sounds super interesting, honestly. Um, yeah. And I'm really puzzled by this question of the periodicity. Um, so yeah, let, let, let us grab more questions if there are, and otherwise I, I can give more details on that question or. Lewis and Jake, if either of you have anything, you should just go ahead and jump in. But if not, no worries. So there's one, maybe if we, I don't know if we have time, but there's one thing, um, um, given it's small audience that I would love to share, um, is that there's a really cute proof of why um, no finite amount of colors works if you consider the graph um, with um, diagonal edges as well. So each node having um, eight neighbors instead of four. So if there are no questions, maybe we can do that and then close because uh, it really takes minutes. So sorry, I'll go, I'll go to Zoom. Um, how do I? Oh, yeah. So I'll... Um, Sure, well, whitebird. So um, what I was suggesting is what if we, um, what if we sort of, um, sorry, think of it with um, nodes having um, diagonal neighbors as well. So it would look sort of like so. Um, so these guys are all connected. And obviously, I'm just drawing a finite part of this, but um, but hopefully the idea makes sense. And you continue um, like so. So it actually turns out that the backing chromatic number here, so I'm just going to write it as PC to not write math, is actually infinite. You cannot color this infinite graph with a finite amount of colors. The proof is really, really surprisingly cute. So um, if we look at this three by three graph, I could place um, I could place a four here. Let's say I place a four over there. Can I place another four? Question for the audience. Yes, no. Could I place another four in this three by three? Uh, everything's two away. Right. So I could not place a four anywhere. 
Um, and that's implying something. It's implying that I can have at most one four in this graph, right? And that's at least telling me that every nine vertices, I can have at most one four. So that's telling me that the density of four needs to be smaller or equal than one over nine. Because I look at this nine vertices and I can have at most uh, one four. I look at the next nine. Uh, so you sort of, I split my, my infinite grid into this um, little three by three ones. And uh, four can only appear once in each of those. So in total, it can only appear with the density of at most one over nine. So more in general, if you have color K, if you have color K, and you imagine that you split the infinite grid in sort of in this um, square chunks of um, of um, side k, so there are k edges on the side. Then this guy here and this guy here are a distance k, right? Because you can take the diagonal edges now, so that's. Um, so the maximum distance here, I guess, is uh, k, which means that um, you can only have the number k in this k by k um, square um, at most once. If you had it somewhere else, then there would be a distance smaller than k, which would break the rules. So this gives us an upper bound on the density of color k. Um, in particular is telling us um, that it cannot appear more um, than, actually can do something a slightly better than what I said and do uh, k plus one square. Because if my square is of side k plus one, still uh, the largest, the this, like, well, I guess it depends on when we meet, what we mean by side, but if I'm talking about the number of vertices, uh, then it's k plus one vertices because the distance is k. So that means that the, the density of color k is at most one over k plus one square. And if I sum that density over all k starting from one, that's the same as or that's smaller or equal than doing the sum, the sum of uh, that thing, right? So one over k plus um, one square. And you can sort of translate that sum to be the sum of, uh, of um, one over k square um, and then subtract the first term, which would be um, one. But the sum of one over k square is actually the problem that um, Euler solved and it's p square over six. And because of the minus one, we get that the sort of sum of these densities is pi square over six minus one. And this number turns out to be smaller than one. So the sum of our densities is smaller than one, which means that we have not been able to cover the entire graph. And therefore it's not possible to color this with a finite amount of colors. So it's a really cute argument in my opinion, and it's really nice that this sort of um, infinite sum that's equal to pi square over six appears. That's super cool. That's a beautiful proof.
yeah, I really like it. Um, it was a sad moment when we realized that our people had done it earlier, but that's okay. Bernardo, this was terrific. Thank you so much. Uh, I think this was a, a, a really visually elegant uh, talk and a, and a fascinating problem. And I'm going to be thinking about taking scissors to infinite grids for the next 48 hours. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. And, uh, and I would love to chat um, offline after this at some point um, on the periodicity thing, because I'm actually quite curious uh, and I would love to know, so. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. Well, cool. Um, and it's okay, just to be clear, if I post this video online, right? So people can watch it, or do you prefer it's only available to group members like in our private slides? No, it's, it's totally fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I assume, I guess, like, oh, yeah, I guess you started recording after, like, or when we were starting. Yeah. No, it's totally fine. Okay. Sounds good. Bernardo. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, um, yeah, uh, that was that was really well explained in, in plain English. Um, I'm one of Max's old roommates from undergrad. Uh, so it's not that I have no back math background, but you know, it's been a few years since I've done a math class. Um, and I didn't really have any trouble, you know, understanding what you were getting at there. So yeah, I could use some kind of breaking it down in plain English and as Max said, the animations. So Justin's too humble. He got straight A's in real analysis. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. I love that. This is great. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye.